I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Well, I wanna welcome everybody to our webinar this afternoon. Really appreciate you all joining us today. I'm Jeff Sickinga. I'm executive director of the Ashbrook Center. And for those of you who may not know, the Ashbrook Center is an independent educational center located at Ashland University here in Ashland, Ohio, North Central Ohio, halfway between Cleveland and Columbus. Um, as an educational center, our purpose, our mission, is to educate our fellow Americans in the history and principles of America, and we hope in the reflection and choice, those habits of reflection and choice that we think are necessary to perpetuate our republic. So thank you for joining us today. We really see this webinar as a part of that educational mission. Uh, joining me for today's conversation are two panelists. Uh, delighted to have them with me, uh, friends and colleagues here at Ashbrook. Uh, professor Jason Stevens is a professor here at Ashland University and works in the Ashbrook Center, uh, formerly served as director of teacher programs and now is helping to direct the Ashbrook Scholar Program, which is our undergraduate honors program in history, political science, and political economy. Jason was an undergraduate here at Ashland University as an Ashbrook Scholar himself, uh, got that good Ashbrook education, went on to get his master's and PhD at the Institute for Philosophic Studies at the University of Dallas. Uh, where he did his doctoral dissertation on Abraham Lincoln, and particularly a very interesting and I think understudied aspect of Abraham Lincoln, which is Abraham Lincoln's foreign policy. So he brings a lot of insight into 19th century America, to the Civil War, and particularly the thought and life and legacy of Abraham Lincoln. He teaches in his courses here at Ashbrook, courses uh, on uh, democracy in America, courses on the US Constitution, on American political thought, teaches a great seminar on Lincoln. And I think this semester, Jason, you're teaching a class on one of Lincoln's uh, great literary inspirations, Shakespeare. So thank you for that, appreciate you joining us today. I also have to add for those uh, who may wanna read this, uh, Jason has written, Jason I think was put onto the study of Abraham Lincoln by his mentor and my mentor, Peter Schramm who was a great, the executive director of the center for many years and a great scholar of Lincoln. And um, I would just recommend to all of you, Jason's very moving tribute to Peter Schramm as a teacher, which was published, uh, I think back in 2015 upon Peter's death in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it's a wonderful tribute to a great colleague and a great teacher and a set, give a sense of what Ashbrook is about and the kind of people um, that we have here. So thank you again, Jason, for joining us. Uh, our other panelist is uh, Patrick Maloney. Patrick is the deputy director of the Ashbrook Center. He got his uh, bachelor's degree from Hillsdale College up in Michigan and is, has been a student in Ashbrook's Master of Arts in American History and Government program, which is a first-rate program for those who are interested in a deep study, graduate study of American history and government through primary sources. And his thesis is on Abraham Lincoln, Stephen Douglas, and the 1859 Ohio governor's race, which again, I think is a interesting, very interesting topic and one that is very important in its day that has been very understudied. So I'm looking forward to Patrick's insightful thesis on that question. Uh, Lincoln, Douglas, and the 1859 uh, gubernatorial race in Ohio. And I also have to say, Patrick is a great lover of U.S. Grant and a great student of U.S. Grant. Uh, I found out a couple weeks ago, I think, Pat, that you own a boot that Ulysses Grant wore when he was a child. 
I do. I have it's, uh, I have a, it's an exact replica of uh, the table that he signed the terms at Appomattox on, uh, and uh, sitting on that on that table is uh, U.S. Grant's boot uh, from his time as a young man in uh, Georgetown, Ohio. How about that? Well, okay. So <laughs> you, you not only look like U.S. Grant, <laughs> you not only smoke cigars like U.S. Grant, <laughs> but you actually own his clothes. <laughs> so folks, we've got some real experts on our topic of our seminar today, heroes of the Civil War. Um, we're going to be talking about Joshua Chamberlain, Ulysses Grant, and Abraham Lincoln. And I thought I'd start us off, if you all don't mind, with an opening question. You know, tomorrow will be the, I think, 161st anniversary of the start of the Civil War with the shots at Fort Sumter. And as we know, the Civil War ended over 150 years ago, I think on April 9th, with the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. But what's amazing to me and interesting to me is that despite the fact that the Civil War, the war finished over 150 years ago, it still seems to engage Americans' imagination. They want to read books about it. They want to watch TV shows about it. They want to see movies about it. Why are Americans still so fascinated by the Civil War? Jason, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, it's a great question, Jeff. Uh, Americans are fond of discussing Americanism. Um, that's a quote from Lord Charnwood in his famous biography of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and right, the chief spokesman for Americanism is, is Abraham Lincoln. And I hope we'll be able to, to talk about him a little bit more uh, later on during, during this webinar. Um, you know, the, the way I look at it is that, you know, the Revolutionary War made us one people, as Thomas Jefferson put it in his immortal Declaration of Independence in that first paragraph, um, right, he declares that Americans are, are one people. Uh, the Revolution made us one people. Um, the Civil War almost, right, made us two. The Civil War kept us from being, from becoming two people. To put it another way, the Civil War kept us one people. Um, and I think if we are to remain one and dedicated to our founding proposition, the proposition that all men are created equal, then every generation of Americans um, must come to understand the, the time and the reasons why we almost ceased to be one people. Right. And to do that, I mean, you go to the Civil War. Um, you're absolutely right. Americans remain fascinated um, by this conflict uh, and it's and it's great heroes like Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, uh, like Ulysses S. Grant, like uh, Abraham Lincoln and Lincoln, especially more books have been been written about Abraham Lincoln than than any other uh, figure uh, save Jesus Christ. Uh, so there is this this fascination uh, with uh, with Lincoln, with the war itself, and with the time period and the events and and uh, and other chief actors uh, surrounding uh, the Civil War. Uh, if you really want to understand what this country is about, if you really want to understand America, you have to understand the Civil War. So it really is, in your mind, a, a, the defining conflict for America. Yes. Yeah. Fast, that's fascinating. And I can understand why then it captures the imagination and the fact maybe that the whole country was involved in the war, that it was on our soil. Hmm. And everywhere you go, you can see battlefields of the Civil War, uh, especially in the eastern part of the United States, north and south. Um, you can really you get a sense of the palpable sense of it being a real conflict on our soil over, in many ways, the meaning of America. Hmm. Um, you mentioned Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Uh, he's, of course, a, a hero of the Civil War, most commonly associated, at least in my mind, with the Battle of Gettysburg. Mm. In many ways, if, if the Civil War is the one of the defining events of America and American history, Gettysburg is one of the defining events of the Civil War. I think it's fair to say. Um, tell us about the Battle of Gettysburg. For some of our listeners who are not necessarily Civil War buffs and, you know, uh, uh, expert historians. Tell us a little bit about the Battle of Gettysburg and its importance in the war. And I'll let Jason, you start, and then Pat, please feel free to jump in. Yeah, please, Pat, jump in here at any point, because 
uh, our viewers probably don't know this, but but Pat and I, uh, a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, we, we took a group of Ashbrook scholars uh, to Gettysburg, uh, a group of a dozen or so scholars, and we we toured the uh, the battlefields there at, uh, at Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. Uh, Jeff, you're exactly right. I mean, it is the, the defining battle of the Civil War. Uh, it is its most bloody battle. Um, Antietam was the single bloodiest day in American history, September 17th, 1862, but Gettysburg was a bloodier battle. Um, it took, but Gettysburg took place over three days, uh, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 1863. Uh, it represented the high watermark of the Confederacy. That is, Lee has right, invaded the North, pushed into Pennsylvania, attempted to uh, distract um, attention on Vicksburg that was currently under siege at the same time uh, by, by U.S. Grant, um, was trying to draw uh, right, Union forces away from Vicksburg into the North. And Lee was hoping to accomplish right, one final crushing victory over the Union forces, laying before the Army of Northern Virginia then a clear road to Washington, D.C., right? If, if the Union loses at Gettysburg, Washington likely falls and the end of the war is, is, is basically certain uh, in favor of a Confederate victory. Um, and so there is, right, you, the stakes could not be higher uh, than, it, than at Gettysburg. Uh, at this time. And of course, it takes place right under the most brutal of conditions, right? The sweltering, uh, you know, summer heat of, of the summer of 1863, you know, temperatures are, are above 100 degrees. I was at Gettysburg this past summer and it was 101 degrees, which was about the same temperature it was during the battle. And I was there, right, in, you know, you know shorts and a t-shirt, and I could not imagine being there, right, dressed in the uniforms that they were wearing at the time, of course, and performing the heroic acts uh, that were being done at the, right on on that on that field. Uh, it it really does it really does boggle the mind. So again, right, very right, the bloodiest battle, but also the most important battle, I think, for the course of the war. And after Gettysburg, with the victory, the Union victory at Gettysburg. I don't want to say, right, the, the end is now inevitable. That is a Union victory is now inevitable because, of course, 1864 will be the bloodiest year of the war. Um, there'll be a long ways to go. But after Gettysburg, the Confederacy will never again, right, push so far north and pose such a great threat uh, to, uh, right, to the Union. Pat, what stands, Pat, what stands out to you, having been to that Gettysburg battlefield, and probably many of our listeners have, but what stands out to you about Gettysburg and the battlefield? Well, let me first, before I answer that, I don't. You guys won't be surprised to work with me uh, to know I'm going to be contrarian here, and I, I, I'm a hopeless partisan of, of U.S. Grant. And there's a school of thought that says so. As Gettysburg is occurring uh, in the in the Eastern Theater and the Western Theater, uh, a, a battle is ongoing that had been since April. Um, and there's a school of thought that argues that this battle was actually more important even than Gettysburg to the ultimate downfall of, of the rebels, and that was Vicksburg. And, um, you know, well, for, Gettysburg our is fought for our listeners, Jason mentioned Vicksburg. You've mentioned it. What's Vicksburg? What's the Battle of Vicksburg about? Vicksburg is, a, uh, is in Mississippi. Um, it occupies a, uh, a high point along the Mississippi River, and there were great guns there that prohibited uh, Union, uh, Union boats from controlling the Mississippi. Um, basically, uh, if, if Vicksburg fell, then the Confederacy would be cut in half. And, but because of these guns, it made it very difficult. We had already captured New Orleans at that point. We could only go so far up, uh, as Vicksburg or the range of Vicksburg's guns. And we controlled, uh, North of Vicksburg. So we had to take Vicksburg. And in April of that year, uh, uh, Grant orders uh, uh, Admiral David Dixon Porter to have his his gunboats uh, basically make a run past those guns. They they take heavy damage, um, and that actually allows for Grant to move some of his troops to the east bank of the Mississippi uh, and march south, and then head back over to the other side and encircle the city and begin a months long siege of of Vicksburg 
that while Gettysburg occurs on July 1st through the 3rd, on the 4th uh, of July, actually, not coincidentally enough, is when Vicksburg finally capitulates and falls. Uh, and uh, I just want to mention that there is, as important as Gettysburg is, um, there is a school of thought that says that Vicksburg ultimately uh, had, a, had a bigger impact on, on the, uh, the ultimate end of the, of the Confederacy. But uh, to your original question, what stands out most about Gettysburg? Um, to me, it is um, at, at the, the angle there, um, at, uh, right along Cemetery Ridge, where um, uh, Pickett's Charge is occurring. And um, I think it's the second U.S. artillery, uh, David, or excuse me, uh, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's the second U.S. artillery uh, is just pouring down um, cannon fire at, at, uh, at Pickett's Charge there. And uh, one of the men command, commanding the battery is um, Alonzo, uh, excuse me, uh, Alonzo Cushing is his name, from uh, Wisconsin. He's a 24-year-old West Point graduate, and uh, he is in command of one of the batteries. And, of course, uh, the Confederacy is responding uh, with, with uh, equally fierce fire, and one of the shells explodes near Cushing and um, uh, disembowels him. Um, and he is told to retreat from the field. He refuses. He's literally holding his guts in, continuing to give orders, and refuses to retire from the field. And his his aide, um, uh, he becomes so weak uh, that his he's he's held aloft on a I believe it's a uh, a door, and he's continuing to give orders uh, to his aide who's who's relaying them. And as he gets up to to give an order to um, uh, to his aide. He's struck and killed through it with a shot through the through the mouth uh, and kills him. Um, but that that effort by the uh, the second uh, U.S. artillery there uh, on on Cemetery Ridge um, is what repels or plays a large part in repelling the um, uh, the charge of Pickett on that on that last day of the battle. And his uh, headstone at West Point reads, "Faithless until death." Um, and I think he encapsulates very well the dedication um, the, of those men, of those union men, the heroism of those union men um, that, I mean, it all could have ended right there because that's, of Cushing and others like him. They, they, were, they held the line and, and, and the union survived. That, that's and, remarkable. Uh, yeah, yes. remarkable. I mean, and then it makes me think of um, a, a, the figure of, of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. And because so many stories from that day at Gettysburg are stories of great heroism, um, like the second U.S. artillery there, um, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain might not be a figure. Some folks have probably heard of him, but he's clearly not as famous as U.S. Grant or Abraham Lincoln. But Jason, why is he important to understand as a hero of Gettysburg and of the broader Civil War? Who is this guy? And to your mind, why is he important in the way that Pat has said so many of those uh, folks there were important? Yeah, great question. So uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, his, his popularity is actually uh, undergoing a resurgence of sorts. Uh, he was the, the subject uh, of the, uh, the popular book, uh, The Killer Angels by Mark Michael Shera, right, which detailed the, right, provided historical narrative for, for the Battle of Gettysburg which was the source for the Gettysburg movie, which came out in the, the early 90s. Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, one of the heroes of that film, portrayed by, uh, what's his name, uh, Jeff Daniels uh, in that film. There have been songs written about uh, Chamberlain in the 20th Maine uh, in the past uh, number of years. Uh, and just a few years ago, we had a, an Ashbrook scholar uh, who is now studying uh, to get her PhD in history at LSU. She wrote her Ashbrook senior statesmanship thesis on Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. And so, yeah, no study of, of Gettysburg or, you know, for that matter, the Civil War or America, I think, is complete without um, uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Um, from Maine, of course, from southeastern Maine, never attended West Point, did not attend, uh, right, did not have a military education, actually attended seminary after graduating uh, from Bowdoin College in Maine. And he uh, he went on to return to his alma mater as a professor. He was a professor of of rhetoric of of natural and revealed religions. The the guy knew like ten languages 
He was a professor of languages. Uh, in fact, by the time he retires from Bowden, he eventually becomes the college's president. By the time he retires, he had taught every subject in the curriculum except for mathematics. Wow. <laughs> and as a professor, I can just tell you how, how incredible that is. That fact is that he, yeah, he had taught everything except math. Well, then how does a guy like that, who is an academic, mm -hmm. how does he get into the Civil War and how does he end up at Gettysburg in command of troops? Yes. Yeah. Another really good question. So he, he does not join the war effort immediately. He has a pretty comfortable life at home, right? Raising his children. He's married. He has, right, you know, young little brats at home to take care of. And um, he has a, you know, a, a wife. He has a good job. And uh, although he was always pro-union and uh, anti-secessionist, uh, he did not join until, until later uh, in the war when at first he filed with, uh, with Bowden, he filed for a, a leave of absence, which was denied him, right? So he files for a leave of absence in order to join the army uh, and the college denies his leave. And so what Chamberlain does is then instead he files for a two-year sabbatical and, and he tells right, his administrators that he is planning to go to Europe to study uh, for two years. And the college reluctantly grants his sabbatical. And instead of going to Europe, uh, he joined the Union Army. Not, not too many professors take their sabbatical time to go into an active war. No, nope, not many that I know of. What moves him to do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. Um, so what moves him to do that is um, his great love for the Union, the principles upon which it stood, and the great threat that he saw posed by secession, right, to destroy that union and to perpetuate that thing, um, which is contrary to all of its great immortal principles, the institution of slavery. Uh, he is not an abolitionist per se, in the same way Lincoln is not an abolitionist, but he is vehemently anti-slavery. Um, wants to see slavery eradicated, will eventually come to understand the war, right, as even though it may have began in Chamberlain's mind as a war to preserve the Union, right, transformed into a war to abolish slavery. So what was he typical, and I guess this is a question for both of you, was, was he typical of Union officers of that time? I mean, did they see, maybe a, even a Union officer like Grant, did they see the Civil War as a fight against secession or as a fight against slavery or both? Yeah, I, I, think, I think Grant, not unlike Chamberlain or Lincoln or a lot of others, saw it starting off as a, as a, uh, you know, a fight against uh, secession and preserving the Union. Um, uh, when he receives word of the, of the attack on Fort Sumter, um, he says that it's essentially a time for choosing, that there is only room now for traitors or patriots. Um, you know, again, like Lincoln and like Chamberlain, um, Grant wasn't an abolitionist. Uh, he was raised in an in a anti-slavery Whig family. Uh, coincidentally, his, his father uh, was apprenticed uh, with John Brown's family. Um, in Hudson, Ohio. Uh, John Brown, the radical his, abolitionist. Yes, yes. Um, and so some of his, his uh, anti-slavery views were, were influenced by that, but he, he never became a radical abolitionist. He was, he was opposed to the expansion of slavery, and, 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 and Grant gets that from his father. Um, but by the end, I think it was clear to him that in order to preserve the Union, slavery had to go it was a violation of our of our founding principles. And, and he even writes in his memoir um, that uh, slavery was the uh, overriding cause that caused the, uh, caused the secession of the Southern states and for which they fought. So, so I think he evolved in that, it, into, into that view. And not, and you, as you, Jason are saying, that's not uh, unlikely, or that's not uncommon for a lot of people who fought on the union side. Right. Yeah. Um, Chamberlain himself, Jason, uh, uh, why is he heroic at the Battle of Gettysburg? What does he do that has earned him this title? Yeah, that's where I, I was hoping we were going to go next. So uh, Chamberlain, although by the end of the war, he would he would rise to the level of a, of a brigadier general. In fact, he, he's wounded in at, at the Battle of Petersburg later in the war 
nobody, including Chamberlain, thought that he was going to survive. And so he, he's given sort of this deathbed um, promotion to, to Brigadier General, surprising everybody he actually survives and will be there at Appomattox and will do something really special at, at Appomattox. And hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about that as well. But really the defining moment of his life uh, took place on July 2nd, 1863, the second day, the middle day of the, the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, on a little round top. Uh, Chamberlain was the colonel of the 20th Maine Volunteers, um, which had been formed, I think, in the summer of 62, um, had been present at the Battle of Fredericksburg, had taken heavy fire, uh, heavy casualties at the Battle of, of Fredericksburg, uh, was in reserve for the Battle of Chancellorsville. Uh, their numbers you know, was, were below half strength uh, by the time the, the Battle of Gettysburg uh, comes around. Right? They had started out with about 1,000 men. There were you know, probably less than, fewer than 500 by the time they get to Gettysburg. Um, and they are ordered, the 20th Maine, that is, to the extreme left of the Union line at Gettysburg. They're on Cemetery Ridge. Uh, a top little round top. Um, they are the extreme left, the extreme flank. Yeah, to their right, there's Pennsylvanians, there's the 44th New York, there are Michiganders there, but the 20th Maine is the extreme left flank of the Union line, right? And they were ordered to hold that position at all hazards, right? Because if the Confederates try to sweep around that line, which everybody knew they would, Right, because if you've ever been to Gettysburg, trying to climb up the front face of Little Round Top in the face of torrential gunfire with all of those rocks, it just can't be done. It can't be done. So the Confederates were, were going to swing around, and they did. They swung around the side to try to come up the back of the uh, of Little Round Top, and that's where they met with Chamberlain's 20th Maine. So you had uh, two regiments, I think, um, the 15th. Uh, and 67th uh, Alabama infantry regiments um, under the uh, under the command of uh, of Hood uh, pushing up right little round top again and again and again and again starting at about you know three o'clock in the afternoon uh, for the better part of of two hours again in this sweltering heat right the Confederates make right these repeated successive pushes in order to try to overwhelm right, the 20th Maine, there on the extreme left flank. All the while, um, Chamberlain's men, right, are raining gunfire down upon the Alabamians, and they're quickly running out of ammunition. And they know that if they stay there any longer, they will be overwhelmed. They know that if they retreat, that the Union line will fold, the Confederates will flank the Union line, will sweep up over the ridge and possibly take the entire army by surprise. So they realize they can't stay where they are and they can't run, they can't leave. So Chamberlain orders a bayonet charge. Now there's, there's some dispute over um, whether or not Chamberlain actually led the charge like you see in the movie. I highly recommend the movie Gettysburg. Watch this you know, fantastic scene of the, uh, the, the 20th Maine and the bayonet charge. Chamberlain in all likelihood doesn't actually lead the charge himself, but he does order it. Uh, and it's that order that saves the day for the Union. That, it's that order that saves the day for the Union Army, for the Battle of Gettysburg, and possibly even for the war itself. Right. There, there, are, there are plenty of historians out there who would point to that second day's battle and the heroics of Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain on Little Round Top as the defining moment of the war that saves the war for the Union. So it's, as you say, it's either retreat and potential collapse mm -hmm. or what they do is a straight up bayonet charge down the hill That's into right. their enemies. Is it successful? It is. It is. Yeah, it is successful. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the Alabamians, they, they were completely exhausted. They were actually forced to, to march out before they had the chance to refill their canteens. So they're going through the, all of those efforts without water. Um, and it, it, it's over the course of, of several hours. They're exhausted themselves. They're running low on ammunition. Um, but, right, what was it? Like, there's this old line from Napoleon, right? If, if you're too weak to, to play defense, go on the offense. 
<laughs> and that's what he did. And that's what he did. Yeah. <laughs> Was he ever recognized for this act, uh, this really amazing act of insight and courage? Yes. Yeah. He received the Medal of Honor. Yeah. For his heroics. I think it was like 30 years later, though, that he receives it. And then he, he, he actually right, always came back for right, the reunions. And he dies at the age of 85 in 1914, I believe, uh, right after serving four years, four terms as governor of Maine, president of Bowdoin College. But he dies of his war wound that he suffered at Petersburg. Um, he is, therefore, the last Civil War veteran to die of his wounds in 1914. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. And perhaps the last casualty of the war then, therefore. <laughs> he's a pretty, when you think, and it's quite amazing you, when you think about it, he's a, he's a little bit of an unlikely hero coming from that kind of academic background. Yeah, because he, he's not a West crazy. Pointer. He's not a West Pointer like Grant or Sherman, who rise from the obscurity and become these, right, these great commanders. But the greatest commanders of the war had West Point background. Chamberlain's sort of the exception. Um, and there's one other thing that Chamberlain does that's heroic at Appomattox on April 12th, 1865, which, right, is if my calendar is right, is tomorrow is the anniversary. After Lee has surrendered to Grant on April 9th, there was a special ceremony on the 12th where the Confederates would officially turn in their, their weapons and, and their, their colors, their flags. And Chamberlain was selected by Grant to oversee that ceremony. And Chamberlain did something of his own accord where he ordered a military salute to the fallen, defeated Confederates, a sign of respect. The salute was returned. And that moment, even 60 years later, uh, a Virginian con a Confederate said 60 years later that on that date, April 12, 1865, he asserted, quote, reunion began with that order to present arms, end quote. With that order from Chamberlain, reunion, reconstruction, Lincoln never liked the word reconstruct, reconstruction, but reunion finally became possible after the, that order was given. Mm -hmm. Reminds me a little bit of what Winston Churchill says um, about in, in victory, magnanimity. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, look, in some ways, you mentioned Grant as uh, maybe a less unlikely hero than Chamberlain. But Pat, what if I asserted this, that U.S. Grant, in some ways, if you look at his career prior to the Civil War, he's kind of an unlikely success story, an unlikely hero. What's, what's the situation with U.S. Grant? I mean, he becomes a famous general, he becomes President of the United States, but he doesn't seem like he's on that trajectory before the war. That's right. Um, he comes from a very humble background. Um, he's born... Um, April twenty April twenty seventh, um, uh, eighteen twenty two. This this month will be the two hundredth anniversary of his birth. He's born in a single room clappered house in Point Pleasant, Ohio, which is about I don't know today a half hour forty minute drive up the river from Cincinnati to uh, to a tanner. Um, he hated because of growing up in the tannery. Hated the sight and smell of blood. Um, he could not eat uh, a piece of meat that hadn't been basically cooked to death. Uh, because of uh, the, the sight and stench of blood, um, but this man, uh, you know, presides over the bloodiest or commands an army in the bloodiest war in American history. Um, he uh, uh, he's a rather unremarkable student. He's a great horseman, um, uh, but he doesn't even he's an interest in math. Um, he likes to read uh, James Fenimore Cooper novels, um, but he's not really destined to go to the military academy. Um, his father wanted him to go to the military academy. The, the, the boy up the street from their home in Georgetown had flunked out. And uh, his father said, you're going to go to the military academy. And his father and Grant said, well, if you want me to, I'll go. And so he takes off running uh, through the woods as his father instructed him to go find Congressman Thomas Hamer, uh, who was the congressman and would be responsible for giving him the appointment to West Point. And um, Grant's given name was actually Hiram Ulysses Grant. And he hated that name because his initials spelled hug. And so uh, Grant had been friends. Yeah, it doesn't with, seem uh, Grant, too much like a hugger. <laughs> yeah, no, he, no, certainly not. Um, uh, Grant's father had been friends with Congressman Hamer. Uh, his father was very involved in local politics, kind of a gadfly in politics. But they'd had a falling out years before. 
over the, uh, uh, the question of the National Bank and the Jackson administration. And Hamer was a Democrat and Jesse, Jesse Grant was a Whig. And Hamer hadn't seen Grant since he was a, you know, a wee whippersnapper. And he couldn't remember his name. And so as he's filling out the appointment materials for West Point, he knows that Ulysses figures somewhere into the guy's name. And Grant's mother was Hannah Simpson. And it was conventional in those days for uh, uh, an oldest son to have his mother's maiden name as his middle name. So he signed out the appointment for Ulysses Simpson Grant to attend West Point. And uh, young Hiram packs up, uh, 17 years old. He's, uh, uh, he's 5'2", 117 pounds, soaking wet. And he, he packs up uh, uh, to show up to West Point um, that summer. And he gets there. And uh, they say to him, uh, he says, I'm, I'm Hiram, uh, Hiram Grant uh, reporting for duty from Brown County, Ohio. And they take a look at the registration. And they said, uh, sorry, we've got a Ulysses Simpson grant from Brown County, Ohio. You've got one of two options. You can come here as Ulysses Simpson Grant, or you can go back and reapply under your actual name. And he took a, up on the opportunity to change his name. So he would be Ulysses Simpson Grant from that point forward. And his, his friend and his older classmate, particularly Sherman, would refer to him as, uh, because of U.S., Uncle Sam. They called him Sam Grant uh, throughout his, his time at West Point. And again, he was a middling student there. He graduated kind of the middle of the pack. Um, he was and, only and Pat, really... and Pat, during the war, he comes to be known as Unconditional Surrender Grant. That's right. right. That's right. Because of the terms he demanded at the at the Battle of uh, uh, Fort Donelson uh, in 1862, his his old friend from West Point um, uh, asked for terms, um, and uh, uh, he refused to. Uh, he said, "I'm not going to give you terms other than unconditional unconditional surrender," and uh, that was the first big victory for the Union side in the war, and he became known as. Uh, unconditional surrender grant because of that. Isn't that amazing? But, His initials for which he's famous were accidental. Yeah, yes, that's right. That's <laughs> and in right. many ways, I hate to say this, but in many ways, he's kind of a an accidental hero. If you look oh, at yeah. the trajectory that he's on before the war, he kind of washes out of the army, right? He does. He, he, is, he basically uh, has to resign in ignominy uh, because of suspicion and rumors of him drinking on the job. Um, and uh, he re resigns his commission. Uh, he, this was out in California at the time. Um, he returns home uh, and tries his, his hand as a farmer uh, in, in uh, Missouri with his father-in-law. His father-in-law, Frederick, Colonel Frederick uh, Dent, had given he and his wife, Julia, uh, 80 acres uh, as a wedding gift. And he builds this farm, if you can call it a farm, with this house that Julia hated because it was all rough hewn. He referred to it as hard scrabble uh, and failed as a farmer there. Uh, the panic of 1857 bankrupted him. Um, and he was, he was so desperate for money. He had uh, been given a slave from his father-in-law named William to help work the farm. And um, he, he would have been worth about a thousand dollars. Uh, which he desperately needed, and he manumitted him um, because he did not think he should he should own a slave um, and was not comfortable owning a slave. Manumitted him when he needed the money. Um, he had to sell his pocket watch uh, that year to buy Christmas presents for his children. Um, his, uh, Army friends uh, record seeing him on the streets of St. Louis selling firewood out of desperation, uh, and were just horrified at it. You know, he he had been a military genius, uh, not a genius, but but a hero. I, should say during the Mexican War, uh, in which he fought, um, but they were just shocked to see him uh, destitute and out of desperation. His father offers him a job at the dry goods company he ran in Galena, Illinois, in 1860, and he moved his family there. He was actually working for his two younger brothers, um, and um, the war breaks out, and he happens to uh, get an appointment. Uh, by the governor to be his military aide and is in charge of military volunteers uh, for the state of Illinois. And um, uh, a couple of early battles in the war really put him on the map. Uh, Fort Donelson makes him a household name. He's really the victor of the first major Union battle uh, uh, during the war and, and begins his, his trajectory. I mean, it, it's really something to, to think about. You know, 1860, 
uh, you know, he's 38 years old. Uh, he's destitute, written off as a drunk. Um, three years later, he's the commanding general of the United States uh, Army. And uh, by 1869, 1868, he's running for 1869. He's sworn in as the 18th president of the United States. It is a incredible, it, remarkable climb. Remarkable. So, so that tells me that there was, he goes from washing out of the army at, under suspicion of being a drunk to selling firewood on the streets of St. Louis to rising to be commanding general of the Union Army, as you just said. There must have been some kind of military or strategic genius that he had that somehow revealed itself once he finally gets command. I think that's right. I think that there are, there are two things um, that, that reveal the man's character. Um, one is his understanding of, of military command. He writes in his memoir, he served under two generals during the Mexican War, um, uh, Zachary Taylor, old rough and ready, and, um, uh, oh goodness, what, uh, help me out here, J uh, Jason, the commanding general at the outbreak of the war. Winfield, Winfield Scott. Scott. Winfield Scott, yeah, forgive me. Um, and he learns different lessons from these men, but he, he really likes the leadership approach and style of, of uh, uh, Taylor. It kind of models himself after, after him. Um, and I think what he learned from the importance of that war is uh, the necessity for uh, a unified command and moving your military on all fronts. Um, that really wasn't happening. Um, uh, early in the war, um, you know, you had, Lincoln had the poor man had a succession of of commanding generals who uh, were just abysmal um, or didn't want to take action. And here was this man in the West who is coordinating his movements with uh, David Dixon Porter, the Navy, uh, to have a, a victory at, at at Vicksburg and at Fort Donelson. Um, and in in eighteen sixty four. He and Sherman, his buddy Sherman, um, meet at the Burnett House Hotel in Cincinnati and plan the final stage of the war um, and determine then um, that, look, it, this is going to be, uh, we're going to be moving on all fronts uh, in unity and putting constant pressure as opposed to, you know, pressure, pressure around uh, uh, you know, Petersburg and, and some skirmishes out west. This was a unified operation across the entire continent to put pressure on the Confederate army. So that's one thing uh, that I think he understood better than anyone else. Uh, and I think it became clear to Lincoln that he needed somebody that saw that. Uh, and, he, and he found it in, in, in this man, Grant. And the other thing that I think you cannot discount Grant about is his stick to -itedness. I mean, a lesser man would have, um, would have stayed washed out of the army, a drunk, uh, and not been able to recover from that, but he was determined. I mean, there are two, two stories from, uh, from the war that I think illustrate this. The first battle or the first day of the battle of Shiloh, um, the, the union army is, is caught unaware by Albert Sidney Johnson and PGT Beauregard and, and the Confederate army Sherman's dismissing reports that, that, um, uh, the Confederates are out there somewhere. And, and even if they are, they can handle them. Well, the Confederates come pouring out of the woods um, and basically drive the Union Army back almost to the river, um, uh, to Pittsburgh Landing there. And the last line of defense holds them, uh, holds and keeps the Union Army and, and Grant and Sherman from being crushed. And it's raining cats and dogs that night. And Sherman goes to find his fr friend Grant. And Grant's under a tree smoking his trademark cigar. And uh, Sherman comes up to him and he says, well, Grant, he said, we've had the devil's own day today, haven't we? And Grant puffs on a cigar. He said, yes, but we'll lick him tomorrow. And that's exactly what they did. He was hell-bent and determined to see it through to victory. Uh, that next day, they regrouped and carried the day at the Battle of Shiloh. And then the second instance of this is uh, during the Overland campaign, it might have been the wilderness. Um, this is when he's taken command in the east. Um, the Union Army was so used to, in victory or defeat, tucking tail and running the other way. And the uh, Grant and his, and, and his troops had been defeated. 
and they come to a fork in the road. And if they took one fork, they'd be going north and retreating. And so Grant's leading the, the troops, and they come to this fork in the road, and they went south. Yes, they were licking their wounds, but they were going to keep pressing on, and they were going to go after, go after uh, uh, Lee uh, in the Army of Northern Virginia. And, an, and, a, and a cheer goes up all the way along the line, because here they're finally fighting and going after the enemy. And it was Grant who did that, uh, that his predecessors weren't doing anything like that. Uh, and I, the only other thing I will, I will add for his military genius, it's been said that, that Grant understood the terrible arithmetic of the war, that the, it was terribly bloody, but Grant knew that the numbers were on the Union side and that the Southern armies could not keep throwing men against the Union line into a charnel house and sustain the war. And yes, the Union army suffered terrible casualties because of it, but Grant understood that, that they could, for lack of a better term, absorb those casualties on the Union side when the Confederacy could not. Mm. Um, Jason, that's, that's, those are very important insights, right, that you said Grant had and put those all together in commanding the Army. Um, Jason, what did Lincoln think of Grant? What was their relationship like? Mm. Yeah, so, so Pat mentioned Right, there was this whole series of generals that Lincoln turned to before he finally found Grant. Um, and I had, to, I had to look this up myself to, re, to, to remind me about it, but it was, so here's the list. This is the order of commanding generals before we get to Grant. Winfield Scott, Henry Halleck, Irvin McDowell, George McClellan, John Pope, George McClellan again, Ambrose Burnside fighting Joe Hooker. And then finally, right, Lieutenant General commanding officers of these United States, Ulysses S. Grant. Um, Lincoln was in search of a general who knew how to use the army. McClellan helped to train it, um, but Grant was actually willing to use it. And when we talk about mil uh, Grant's military or strategic genius, that was also part of it, that he was willing, as Pat said, right, to push forward. Um, in addition to being clear headed under fire, he was actually willing to, to use. Um, that, uh, that great army. And when Lincoln found Grant, there was no turning back. Um, you know, there were, there were reports that, um, you know, Grant was a drunk, but Lincoln, I wouldn't say he ignored them, but he said, you know, I cannot spare this man. He fights. There's this, this story that may be apocryphal even where, where you know, somebody in Lincoln's administration was criticizing Grant for being a drunk, and Lincoln said, you know what, find out what the man drinks and then send a barrel of it to all of my generals. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so Lincoln, Lincoln respected Grant mm -hmm. for his military insight and his strategic courage and, and, mm -hmm. in, and, and push. And I think they trusted each other. Yeah, they would coordinate on big picture plans. But then Lincoln would say, I leave now the details entirely to you. I trust you. Go and win us victories. He had this earned man, this man brings victories. Right. So he had yeah. earned Lincoln's trust, and as Lincoln said in his second inaugural, all else depends on the progress of our arms. Yep, absolutely. Um, Lincoln himself, you know, we have a question. One of our questions here in the Q and A is about his relationship with the great black abolitionist Frederick Douglass. Mm -hmm. And Frederick Douglass, I'm reminded in an oration that he gave after the Civil War. Uh, in honor of Abraham Lincoln, called Lincoln a statesman. Hmm. And, and we've been talking about heroism in the Civil War here in terms of battlefield heroism with Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, of military and strategic heroism, someone like Grant and stick-to-itiveness. But what about Lincoln as a hero? Hmm. And I'm particularly thinking that Frederick Douglass calls him a statesman. Hmm. What does Frederick Douglass mean by calling him a statesman? And how does that, in your mind, make Lincoln heroic, Jason. Yeah, yeah, really good, really good question. Um, if the war only produced one true hero, it was Abraham Lincoln. Frederick Douglass, um, in that same speech where he calls Lincoln a, a statesman, he was also critical of Lincoln for not moving fast enough on emancipation, that he right, was slow, that he dawdled, right, that he was this capitulating compromiser. 
Um, but Douglas, I think, finally settled on his conclusion in that speech that no, Lincoln really was a statesman because nobody could have pulled off what Lincoln did. Uh, we mentioned earlier that Lincoln was anti-slavery, vehemently anti-slavery, but he wasn't an abolitionist, right? If he had freed all the slaves at the beginning of the war, um, then there's there's no way that you would have reunification at the end of it. Um, if he had freed all of the, the slaves after that first shot, you know, is fired on Fort Sumter, um, right? You know, which right we will we will have to remember you know tomorrow on the anniversary. Uh, then the war would have been completely lost. Um, it's it's Lincoln who was willing to make compromises, who was willing to go slow, who understood with a crystal clear purpose better than anyone, not just how to save the Union, but why the Union was worthy of saving. I think Lincoln understood that better than anyone. And that, I think, was a central aspect of his statesmanship. He, he understood justice. He understood the principles of justice, the principles of the Declaration of Independence that were at the heart of the Union. And he also had the prudence and the courage to carry that out, right, to actually implement justice and, and bring it and, and make it real. Whereas, you know, an abolitionist may have been lacking in, in, right, in, in prudence um, in order to try to do too much too soon, Lincoln was able to, to do it all eventually. Yeah, but just like U.S. Grant was ferociously criticized, Lincoln, too, was ferociously criticized, mm -hmm. including by people like Frederick Douglass. Oh, goodness, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. like I said, Douglass uh, accused him of being too slow and dawdling. Um, Right. He said that, you know, Lincoln was the, the white man's president. Um, but Douglas, I think, also came to understand that um, Lincoln and Grant as well, right, had um, had done more for the cause of e emancipation uh, than anybody. So um, what, we've got another, uh, some more questions, of course, coming in. And one of our listeners wants to know, um, for Lincoln was, as you say, opposed to slavery, opposed to its expansion in the West. But then the question would always come up, what about emancipated, what about African slaves who have been emancipated? Do they, mm -hmm. Are they American citizens, integrated into society, or should they be relocated somewhere else? Yeah. And the questioner wants to know, did Frederick Douglass and Lincoln disagree about that question? What to do? with freed slaves. Yes, they did. They did at least for a time because Lincoln plays with the, the possibility of colonization up until 1862. That is the, the practice of freeing American slaves and then sending them back to Africa. Um, Frederick Douglass was vehemently opposed to that idea because for, for Douglass, uh, he looked at, right, he looked at members of, of the African American race here in the United States uh, slaves and former slaves. And Douglas's response was, we're not Africans. We're Americans. This is our home. Africa's not our home anymore. We're never going back. Um, Lincoln played with that possibility up until 1862 until he, I think he finally realized it was unworkable and in, impracticable. And Lincoln came around during the course of the war, right, to the understanding, right, of, of full integration or laying the groundwork for full integration. So uh, today, April 11th, um, in April 11th, 1865, this was the date of Lincoln's final public address, right? So Appomattox happened on the 9th. On the 10th, there are these great crowds that come out to the White House, right? They're, they're serenading Lincoln. They're on the White House lawn looking up at the president in the window. This was back in the days when you could walk right into the White House or, or white, walk right onto the White House lawn. And uh, the crowds are clamoring for Lincoln to, you know, give us a speech, give us a speech. And Lincoln comes out and he basically says, come back tomorrow. I'll have some prepared remarks for tomorrow to give you. I've got nothing for you now, except I have one request. Uh, I want the band to play my favorite song, Lincoln says. I want them to play Dixie. He says, I've, 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 I've talked with the Attorney General of the United States, and he and I have determined that it is, that song is now a fit and proper war prize. It belongs to us now, Lincoln says. And he asked the band to strike up Dixie and they did so, they played around a Dixie. The next night, the crowds return. And again, they're clamoring for Lincoln, they're serenading for Lincoln. And Lincoln comes out and he delivers, right, his, his short 
last, what turned out to be, of course, his last public address. And in that speech, Lincoln says he advocates for extending the rights of suffrage to some free American, former American slaves, right? To the well-educated and to veterans, right? Extending the right to vote, right? To former slaves. John Wilkes Booth is in the audience down below the window. He hears what Lincoln says. And Booth's response is, I'll paraphrase here, that's the last speech that man will ever make. He dies. Booth promised to kill Lincoln when Lincoln promised to extend the right to vote to former American slaves. And in doing that, not just in freeing the slaves, but in granting them the rights of citizenship, right? Lincoln is, is, a, is a martyr on the altar of liberty. Um, one question here about um, Frederick Douglass obviously had an influence on him. Just to both of you, just very briefly, would you think, would you call Frederick Douglass uh, a hero of the Civil War? Oh, absolutely. I think he's a hero of the Civil War. Yeah, after, after, his, after Lincoln delivers the second inaugural address, right, he goes, he goes out into the crowd and he, he sees Frederick Douglass and he walks up to Douglass and says, right, there's my good friend, Fred Douglass. And he right, you know, claps him on the shoulder and he said, you know, Mr. Douglass, what did you think of my little speech? And Douglass's reaction is he says, Mr. President, it was a sacred effort. It was a sacred effort. I think that's right. Uh, you know, and, and Grant, you know, there's always this question would Reconstruction have ended differently? What would have happened had Lincoln survived? And I think we get an idea of that because Grant, you, you asked the question, what did, what did Lincoln think of Grant? When Lincoln died, Grant, when the funeral occurred in the East Room of the White House, um, Grant sobbed like a little baby uh, at the foot of the casket. I think the case can be made that, that, Lincoln, or that Grant, to the best of his ability, carried out what he understood to be Lincoln's wishes for reunification. Um, and, uh, you know, Grant is the one who backs the passage of the 15th Amendment, uh, making sure that, that, that uh, blacks had, had voting rights. He signs into law the, the, uh, uh, the act that establishes the Department of Justice in 1870 um, uh, in order to combat the Ku Klux Klan, which had uh, risen in the South and um, uh, was intimidating uh, black voters. And Grant crushed the Klan, not the Klan as we know it today, but the, the, this, the, these former Confederates uh, that were operating in the South, he crushed them and made sure that the rights of citizenship to African-Americans uh, were realized by them. After the war, this is what we had fought for. Uh, the the Really, the election of 1870, 72, um, th those were the freest, fairest elections in American history up until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. Because, um, of course, uh, Reconstruction ends after, after Grant's term. Um, but this whole time, you know, in a way, Douglas had been a, uh, uh, a sounding board and a conscience, I think, not that Lincoln needed much help with conscience, but 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 also, but 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 a second conscience for conscience for Lincoln to advise him on things, and he was for Grant as well. I think they both um, tried to realize what Lincoln was talking about in that last address uh, that that he gave on the anniversary of, of today, and also in his second inaugural address. Mm, fascinating. Um, you know, one of the things we always talk about at Ashbrook is the importance of studying history through primary documents. Um, so things like Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, if we want to understand the meaning of the Civil War, things like some of Grant's speeches to his troops and as president, right? We say, don't read the textbook, um, read the primary documents themselves, dig into those and really have a conversation like we've been having, have a conversation with the past and try and understand those principles for, for yourself. Um, but there are folks out there have, have asked, um, what about your all recommendations for them who want to go on and think a little bit more about the Civil War, about Lincoln, Grant, Chamberlain? What are, J Jason, you've mentioned the Gettysburg movie, but what are your favorite movies or books uh, about the Civil War 
or speeches that you think just very quickly that you think folks should read jason pat yeah the the, the movies gettysburg uh gods and generals especially the movie glory i would highly recommend the movie glory and the new steven spielberg movie i guess now it's not so new but the new the new steven spielberg movie lincoln uh excellent films as far as books go uh, again, Michael Scherer's The Killer Angels about the Battle of Gettysburg. Ron Chernow has a, a great 1,000-page beast of a biography on, on Grant. Came out in the past few years. That is quite excellent. Um, I'd also recommend um, you know, a couple of volumes from the Ashbrook Core Documents Collection. Um, we're currently working on a volume on the Civil War. Uh, Dr. Dan Monroe is, is working on, uh, on that volume, and we have previously put out a, a, a volume on the causes. Uh, of the Civil War, all original primary documents uh, with introductions and, and study questions uh, going along with all of uh, all of those documents. I, I would recommend one other original source, but I have the feeling Maloney is going to take that. Uh, it's the best presidential memoirs in existence. <laughs> Pat, what are those? Grant's memoir, um, uh, without a doubt, um, uh, you must read that if you want to understand the man um, and and appreciate. Uh, his greatness. Uh, it is amazing how uh, well the prose holds up. Um, you know, it, it is clear writing. That's one thing that everyone uh, remarked about Grant is, you know, when you would read his orders, he wrote so clearly that and there was never any doubt that what he needed you to do. Uh, and, and that carried through into his, uh, in his memoirs. Um, and the story behind the memoir and how it is written is or why it was written is fantastic. Uh, Mark Twain called it the uh, the greatest memoir uh, uh, since Caesar's commentaries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now Twain had some reason uh, to sing its praises. He was responsible for its publication. Um, Grant and his son had gone into business with the Bernie Madoff of their day. Uh, a man named Ferdinand Ward, who defrauded them and uh, provoked an economic panic in the country. Uh, Grant and his family lost everything. And as they're going through this terrible financial setback, um, he discovers that he has terminal uh, oral and throat cancer. And he had resisted every opportunity. Uh, His friend Twain had come to him and said, write your memoirs, I'll publish them for you. And he thought that he would be, uh, he, he didn't want to seem like he was, he was uh, benefiting off of his, his service to the country. But when he lost everything, um, he needed a nest egg uh, to keep his, his family out of the poorhouse. So uh, he, in a race against time, he writes his memoir, uh, and it holds up incredibly well. Maybe at the end it gets a little bit dicey because two or three days after he finishes the manuscript, he dies, finally. And uh, uh, Twain, Twain actually sold the book on subscription before it was even finished. Uh, and as a result, um, the, uh, Julia Grant got $400,000, which is, I think, about the equivalent of $16 million today, uh, and, and kept. Uh, this was Grant's uh, final battle, his last victory, and it was to, to save his family uh, and, and record his experience of the war. But I think there's also the effect in there of uh, his campaign in 1868 for president. The slogan was, let us have peace. And I think he, he spent the entirety of his career thereafter trying to, in Lincoln's words, bind up the nation's wounds. And he writes very movingly of, of his, southern, uh, uh, his southern opponents uh, and said, look, they fought for the worst cause that they ever you know, man ever took up arms for, but they fought bravely and honorably. Um, and, and that is what we should celebrate, uh, their bravery, not necessarily the cause for which they, they fought. Um, and I, I think that it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. And there is a lot that I think can be instructive to us today when we wrestle with these questions about uh, what caused the Civil War and how do we honor those that, that, that fought uh, on the wrong side. Thank you. That's wonderful to, to hear. And one of our listeners recommends Passing of the Armies by Chamberlain, which they say is, was published after his death. So great things to read from all of these amazing Americans. Thank you both for joining us so much. This has been terrific. Lots. Of, I'm sorry we didn't get to all of everyone's questions. We had so many, but what a great topic. 
Very insightful. Thank you very much for joining us today. I want to thank all of the listeners, you all for joining us. Uh, you'll be sent a link to a recording of this webinar. So if you want to hear it again and listen again, so many great details and stories, but also please send it to your friends, your family, your colleagues, anybody who you know, you know who might be interested in this. And for more information on the Ashbrook Center, you can visit our website at ashbrook.org. For those of you who are students or especially teachers joining us, you can look us up at teachingamericanhistory.org or tah.org. Great um, set of documents and wonderful um, help in the classroom for teachers there. And don't forget our podcast called The American Idea, which you can find at ashbrook.org or on any podcast streaming service where we have these kind of conversations about the important principles and events and people who have shaped America and made it what it is today. So uh, we have uh, more webinars coming up on May 9th. We're gonna be celebrating VE Day, Victory in Europe Day, and what we can learn from our victory over Nazi Germany. And on June 13th, we'll be talking about Ronald Reagan and the fight for freedom. So please join us to those, on those events. We really believe here at Ashbrook that by studying heroes like these three and the understanding the principles that, for which they fought, we can gain insight for today and we can renew our own understanding of the principles that make us who we are as Americans. And we really believe that that kind of renewal of our understanding leads to hope and ultimately to an understanding, a more deep and hopeful understanding of who we are and what we are as a country. And as always, thank you for joining us. Stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay connected with Ashbrook. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The American Idea, a production of the Ashbrook Center. We're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review and like, follow, or subscribe on your platform of choice. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Thanks again for joining us.